We come tonight to Genesis chapter 49 in our study of the book of Genesis, approaching the end here. Chapter 48, Father Jacob was sick. He's on his deathbed here, really, because by the end of chapter 49, he dies in the last verse. But in chapter 48, he had blessed the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and had elevated them to tribal patriarchal status. He'd made them the heads of tribes. And now he gathers all his sons, and he speaks these parting words of prophecy and blessing. Genesis chapter 49, verse 1, the word of the Lord. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that the rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backwards. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall tramp down, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
by the God of your Father, who will help you, and by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers." Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then Father Jacob charges them to bury him in the land of Canaan. And then in verse 33, when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So for the reading of Scripture, let's bow before God and ask him to bless it to us. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed as our mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us now by your Holy Spirit into true understanding of your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would show to us the way of salvation written long ago, but still so clear and relevant for your people today. Father, remember those who cannot be with us on this Lord's Day due to illness. We pray you'd bring healing and recovery. We pray, Lord, you'd show them mercy and grant them the Lord's Day blessing too. In Jesus' name we pray. Grant us your help. Amen. Congregation of Christ Jesus in the book, The Hiding Place by Corey Tin Boom, I think it's in there that she tells the story of standing at, I believe, a train station with her father, and she's pressing him as to why he won't tell her certain things, to which he replies at one point to his daughter, telling her to pick up his suitcase and carry it, and she replies, but father, I can't. I'm not big enough. I'm not strong enough. And he suggests to her that's the way it is about what she wants to know. There are things she's not ready for yet. One of the, one of the struggles parents have at times is how much to tell their children. How much should they say about what we're going to do in a week or in a month? How much should they say to them about adult troubles? And sometimes the, the struggle parents have is, is one motivated more selfishly. They don't want to tell their children things lest their children begin to harass them. When are we going to do it? When are we going to go? But other times, hopefully more often, the struggle of parents is motivated by love for their children. What's appropriate at this stage in their life for them to know? How much should we say to them? What would be right and fitting? But if there's one person, of course, who has the knack of parenting down, if we can put it that way, it's our Father in heaven. And our Father in heaven always tells his children the right amount at the right time, doesn't he? And as you study the Bible, you note that there is a progression in revelation, that God doesn't tell his people everything up front, but as he walks with them through the journey of the decades and centuries, he unveils more and more and more to them along the way. And as we come to Genesis 49 tonight, we see that God brought his people to a monumental point at the deathbed of Father Jacob. God had called Abraham 
and then Isaac, and now Jacob, who has these 12 sons. And here, as he's about to die, the Spirit of Christ so works on Father Jacob that God reveals some glorious things. Now, Jacob, you recall, has come down to Egypt because there's a famine, and, and Joseph, who become prime minister in Egypt, has called his family down to come and move there. And, and Father Jacob, when he came to Egypt at 130 years old, he seemed to think he could die now. He told Jacob, I've seen you, I can die now. But in God's providence, he lives another 17 years in the land of Egypt. And yet we don't know much about that time. The text sort of zooms past it. But now at the end of his life, the text of Genesis slows way down because these are vital words for the future of the church. And so we have that chapter last week, 48, the blessings upon Ephraim and Manasseh. And now Father Jacob gathers up all his sons to speak words to them. But the words he speaks by the Spirit of the Lord are not simply, therefore, words of a father wishing his sons well or saying what he hopes will become of them, what, he, what his ambitions are for them. But, but they're the words of God spoken through his mouth. And they're given to these 12 sons not to satisfy their vain curiosity, but specifically to equip them to wait for the coming Redeemer. In fact, Father Jacob, you notice, in the midst of all these prophecies, he breaks out in verse 18 and he says, I have waited, or you could translate it, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And that's what he's trying to call his sons to do, to wait So they need the hope that there's coming a king who will deliver them. They need this hope. If they're going to stay unified as 12 brothers and 12 tribes together, they need this hope. If they're going to stay holy and not mix with the Egyptians, they need this hope to wait for the coming Redeemer. And that's what the Lord's calling them to do in these blessings and prophecies. Let's look at these as the Lord calls us to wait for our king to return as well. We see four things tonight as you find them outlined in the bulletin. First of all, the condemnation of worldly methods. Secondly, the hope of a restoring king. Thirdly, the assigned places of life and struggle. And number four, the almighty guarantee of blessing. Well, learning to wait for the Lord's king means learning to know that we need him. The... The greatest difficulty, as you know, the greatest difficulty in evangelism is not really telling people who Jesus is or what he's done, but the greatest difficulty in evangelism is getting people to believe they need a Savior, right? Our hearts are naturally confident that we can save ourselves, that that we're up to the task, that we're strong, that we're good, that we can employ the methods we have and they'll be sufficient. And yet the story of the Old Testament church includes these repeated lessons that man's methods are insufficient for salvation. And so that's really the lesson of these first three sons here. The the text here, by the way, in Genesis 49, follows the the sons of, remember Jacob had four wives, follows the sons of Leah, and then the sons of the two concubine wives, and then ends with the sons of the favorite wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. But these first three sons of Leah and first three sons of of Jacob are sons that have issues, right? Reuben, verse 3, are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength. But verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Reuben, the firstborn, according to the norms of the day, should have received a double portion of his father's wealth so that he could be equipped to be the leader of the family. But Reuben, you recall, committed immorality with one of his father's wives, Bilhah, 
And because of that now, discipline and judgment comes. He has forfeited that honor. Reuben's motive in that sexual immorality, whether it was simply sexual lust or perhaps it was a power grab in which Reuben was trying to stake out a claim to the place of leadership by taking his father's wife. In any case, what we see in Reuben is an attempt to secure happiness by worldly means. By the path of instant gratification, it was a refusal to wait upon the Lord. Today, too, we see a culture where children dishonor their parents and disobey them, thinking that in doing that they'll find happiness, and when people give their bodies to sexual immorality, thinking that in that they will enjoy happiness. When God is declaring up front, these are not my methods, these are not my means, this is not the way of the coming king, and this is not the way you wait on him. From the tribe of Reuben would come no prophet, no priest, no prince. Father Jacob says to Reuben, you will not excel. You are unstable as water. And so Reuben loses influence. The tribe of Reuben receives their portion of land in the land of Canaan across the Jordan River on the eastern side, away from most of the tribes, over across from the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, and they're stationed on the fringe of Israel, and they will live on the fringe of the nation's life for what they've done. And then follows Simeon and Levi. And Father Jacob says to them, they are instruments of cruelty. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Remember what Simeon and Levi did when their sister Dinah was violated by the prince of Shechem. They convinced the men to be circumcised, promised a covenant with them. And when the men were enduring post-surgery pain, they fell upon them and slew them. They massacred them, one and all. It was an act of horrible revenge and vindictiveness and cruelty to massacre a whole town of men for the sin of one man. And like Reuben, therefore, they employed again worldly methods with their lust for revenge. And again, we know the same thing in in our own lives and in the world, that anger and bitterness and rage are often embraced as the means of happiness. But God is proclaiming that they're dead ends. They are not the way of the Lord. This is not how God's righteousness will be reflected before the world in his people. No. And so they will be scattered. The tribe of Simeon receives an allotment of land, but the circle of their property is within the larger circle of the property of Judah. And over time, Judah absorbs Simeon. And their unique identity becomes lost. Levi also gets scattered. But let me say, in the midst of all these judgments, there's tremendous grace. There's grace, first of all, because God is exposing sin. And that's always an act of God's mercy. He's still speaking to us, even when he is exposing our sin as an act of great mercy. Where would we be tonight if God didn't show us our sin and our need of a Savior? It's a wonderful thing. That God declares he's a righteous God and he tells us that is not a righteous way. And he speaks truth to us so that we, we don't go the way of worldly methods and end up dead eternally. God tells us there's no life in that. 
But secondly, there's great grace found in the fact that though these, these three sons receive judgment, they're not cut off from Israel. They are still tribes of Israel. They're still part of the Old Testament church. They're going to have a place. And they're invited to join all the other brothers in waiting for the coming of the Messiah. God is patient with them. In fact, at the end, we, we hear in verse 28 that Jacob blessed each one. He blessed them all. These sons, too, they do have a blessing. They have part of this blessing of the whole, the blessing of God's salvation, if they will turn to him. And Levi apparently was affected by this judgment of God because you remember the tribe of Levi at the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. Moses comes down the mountain, remember, and they find the people worshiping the golden calf. And then Moses says, strap on your swords. And it's the Levites who gather to him. And with their swords now, not used in a personally vindictive way, but for the honor of God, they bring the sword down as God's wrath upon an idolatrous people. And for that, the tribe of Levi is lifted up to become the priests of Israel. So they get scattered in the land. They have no tribal allotment. They get no property. But they're scattered as ministers of God to teach God's law and proclaim God's blessing. What a gracious God he is turning his people from dead-end paths to look for the coming Redeemer. Well, secondly, tonight we see the hope of a restoring king. The hope of a restoring king. At verse 8, we move to Judah. After words of judgment to Reuben and Simeon and Levi, it's not three strikes and you're out in God's plan, but God proclaims in the fourth place the line of the coming salvation, Judah. Now, God's choice is remarkable. He's flaunting the grace of election here, isn't he? Because the ruler is not going to come from the firstborn, Reuben. And the ruler, the king, the deliverer, is not going to come from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, Jacob's preference. And the ruler is not going to come more particularly from Joseph. Though it must be said, if you or I were reading this for the first time, and we, we began reading the prophecies, and we were wondering... Whose line will the king come from? We undoubtedly would have said to ourselves, it must be from Joseph. Joseph has just saved half the known world from starvation. Joseph is the prime minister of the world's superpower, Egypt. Joseph has proven to be wise. And if anyone's fit that the king should come of his line, it's the tribe of Joseph. And God says, no, I don't need any help. I don't need a prime minister. I don't need a celebrity. I don't need one with name recognition or street cred. I will do this myself. And God passes by Joseph. God declares it's Judah. It's Judah. God has been narrowing down the line of the coming Christ, right? He chose Abraham. And Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and God chose Isaac. And Isaac had twin sons, Esau and Jacob, and God chose Jacob. And now Jacob has 12 sons, and God says, it's Judah. The Christ, the king, will come. The Davidic line, the line of royalty, the kings of my people will come from the tribe of Judah. 
Judah, verse 8, You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, Judah was not squeaky clean. Don't forget Genesis chapter 38, one of the most distasteful chapters in the Bible, perhaps. Judah was a sinner, too. And yet, Judah had repented, apparently. And you remember that as Judah came down to Egypt, and it seemed that Benjamin was now going to be enslaved under the power of Pharaoh, Judah stepped forward to substitute himself and said, Take me instead, because he so loved his father and didn't want to break his father's heart. And Judah was already beginning to show what what true kingship looks like. True kingship is a matter of self-sacrifice for the good of one's people. And this language of Judah here being a lion, which has the idea, right, of domination. The lion is the king of the forest. And this language of the lion, you know, gets developed in Scripture. But when you come all the way to Revelation chapter 5, John is having those visions, right? And he, he hears the angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? Who is worthy to take this plan of Almighty God and to execute it? Who is able to bring the blessing upon the church, God's plan for his people? And John says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. John begins to weep. There's no one who can fulfill God's plan for us as people. There's no one who can bring us blessing. And then one of the angels, or excuse me, one of the elders said to John, Do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And how is he able to do that? How is this king of Judah able to bring all God's blessing upon his people? John says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The lion John looks upon is a lamb that had been slain. And so the path of Judah's self-substitution is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus who gave his life on the cross and who began his reign upon a cursed tree of condemnation. That's our Savior. And so Father Jacob here, by the Spirit of Christ, is looking beyond anything he could even really understand or recognize to be able to confess that from his son Judah will come this ruler, this king, this lawgiver, this dynasty of David, and through him paradise will be restored. That's really the idea in those last words, that he's going to bind his donkey to the vine, that he's going to wash his garments in wine, that there's going to be so many vines That you won't care if your donkey pulls one up or eats the branches. There's going to be so much wine, you might use it for your washing machine. It's the idea of paradise restored, that, that there's this bounty that has come back. No longer a curse, but great blessing. And even in verse 10 now, the... The promise to Abraham is fulfilled. God told Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The nations, the Gentiles will come in. And verse 10 says, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. 
This is the glorious king, God's promise, and he's revealed it now, will be of the tribe of Judah. That's the new revelation to God's people. But if you back up to the beginning of the words about Judah, notice what's said in verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. I was struck by a line in a commentary by the Puritan Matthew Henry when he says that his brothers will bow down to him, his brothers will praise him, and so Matthew Henry says that they will reckon themselves happy in having so wise and bold a commander. It's not forced praise. Your brother shall praise you. They will count themselves happy to have such a king. As you think about the Lord Jesus tonight, is that your response? That you praise him because you are happy to have such a king. You see, one of the tasks as to whether we're living out of the gospel or not is the question, when I think about the Lord Jesus, does it conjure up in my mind a commanding, vigorous lawgiver who lays law upon law? I hope I don't hear from him. I hope he doesn't come around too soon. It's, it's such a burden when he speaks. But when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, you say, oh, I can't wait to see him. Oh, how I love to sing his praises. I am so blessed to be one of his citizens, one of his subjects. If truth be told, we often fall back into that old way of thinking. And that old way of thinking, of counting Christ Jesus a burden, comes when we try to hang on to the world's methods and Jesus at the same time. when we want to employ the way of Reuben and the way of Simeon and the way of Levi and also know the son of Judah. And we can't have it both ways. To learn to praise the Lord Jesus means to let go of the world, to confess our sin, to acknowledge our helplessness, and to see how gracious the Lord is that he gave his life for us That though Genesis quickly turns to paradise lost, in Christ it becomes paradise restored. And the vines give plenty as he brings a new creation. But until he comes again, it's struggle. And that brings us to point three, the assigned places of life and struggle. There's numerous sons now that are mentioned. Two more, the sons of Levi and then the sons of the concubine wives. Bilhah and Zilpah, Jacob's wives. I won't go through each of them for the sake of time and because in some cases it's rather difficult to know exactly how these things are fulfilled. But I would draw your attention to a couple of things. First of all, it's noteworthy that God has a word for each of the sons. Each one has a place to live. Each have given a tribal allotment in the land of Canaan. Each has a role to play. And it's remarkable, I think, that there's diversity here as to where God places them. If you haven't ever done it, you might take out chapter 49 sometimes and get one of those Bible maps that shows the tribal allotments in the land of Canaan and see where all these tribes get located 
when God brings them into the land. Zebulun, for instance, we read in verse 13, he shall dwell by the haven of the sea. His location is by the sea or towards the sea, and he seems to enjoy international trade and prosperity. Verse 20, the bread from Asher shall be rich. There are some tribes who who get more by way of fertile land, who get more by material prosperity. We might, as we read all these things, say, why don't they all get the same? Why don't they all get the same amount of land, the same amount of good land, the same amount of bad land, the same amount of trade and trade routes? That's not the way God does it, is it? He assigns to each a place, a time. God dispenses opportunities and blessings and trials according to his will. But what matters is our response to God using what he's given us. You see something similar, don't you, in 1 Corinthians 12 when, when, when the apostle describes the church as a, a, a body and has all these parts, all these members as our bodies do. And, and he's pointing out that the spirit gives spiritual gifts in a diverse way. He gives to each member at least one spiritual gift. He gives each one of us something by which to serve the others, but we all need each other. We all have a role to play. But you see, the question then is, am I using the gift God has given to me? Am I redeeming the time with the opportunities God has given to me? Though God manifests the Spirit diversely among us in terms of spiritual gifts and in terms of opportunities and in terms of all these blessings, yet with what God has given me, am I responding to him in a way that waits upon the coming king? And something else that shows up as you look through all these sons here is that each has a battle to fight. The struggle of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent continues. We read in verses 14 about Issachar. Verse 15, he saw that the rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Seems like Issachar failed to battle his enemies and instead enjoyed the prosperity and decided just to compromise with the enemy and even was willing to become a slave instead of fighting. Dan, in verses 16 and 17, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way. Of the tribe of Dan comes the famous judge, Samson. But the Danites fall into false worship, and they drift towards the great serpent, Satan. No wonder Jacob cries out, I wait for your salvation, O Lord, in verse 18. And then Gad, Gad also receives a portion of land on the eastern side of the Jordan, and therefore he's exposed to the attacks of the Moabites and the Ammonites by raiding parties. So each tribe has blessings, but each tribe has a battle to fight. And so the way of waiting for the coming king is not just sitting still. It's not a straight line. It's not without times of perplexity and why is God doing this and why are we here? But in every case, the Lord God is at work. As you think about your life tonight, as you see God dealing with these sons by name, specifically each one, it's a reminder to us, I think, that God also deals with us personally. To everyone here tonight, God has filled up your wheelbarrow. 
Your wheelbarrow is filled with enough opportunities to keep you busy, enough spiritual gifts to be of service, enough trials to keep you humble. We're all loaded up, each one of us. And God is saying, now what will you do in where I've placed you? In the situations I have put into your life? What will you do with the opportunities I've granted you? I have chosen your allotment. I, the sovereign God of providence, have given you your calling. What is your response to me and to the son of Judah? And if that scares us and we think, I don't know, makes me nervous, not sure about this, what trials I'll have to endure, I'm not sure about the weighty responsibilities God has laid upon me, I don't know if I can do this. Then the final thing we hear tonight is the great comfort, the almighty guarantee of blessing as God speaks through Jacob to Joseph. Now, Joseph receives the most text here, doesn't he? Verse 22 and following, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. That's Joseph. He's like this plant, this tree that's blossoming out, and his branches go over the wall, and those who pass by can pick the fruit. This is what Joseph's become to the world, right? He's saved the world from starvation. But getting to that place of being the physical savior of the world wasn't easy. The text goes on to say that the archers, verse 23, the archers have bitterly grieved him. They've shot at him. They've hated him. And it seems to be a poetic way of describing what his brothers did to him. They turned against him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. And what could Joseph do? Who would protect Joseph? How would Joseph make it? This is my allotment, God, to be thrown down into slavery in Egypt, to be put into a prison, to be falsely accused, to be hated by my brothers? How can I respond to God in this? But Father Jacob says, verse 24, But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you. Joseph went through all of that. You recall there was somebody always watching out for Joseph. There was someone greater than his brother's hatred, someone greater than the lies of Potiphar's wife. There was the almighty Lord of the covenant, the God of Jacob, who strengthened him, protected him, comforted him, who carried him, who opened prison doors for him. All these names are named. One commentator writes, All the names by which Jacob had come to know his God and each of which laid stress upon some specific attribute were gathered together in this pronouncement of blessing upon Joseph. Another one writes, A cascade of divine ascriptions unparalleled in Genesis. Another one says, He invoked a waterfall of divine names over his son, Mighty One of Jacob, Shepherd, Stone, God of your father, El Shaddai, Thus, we cannot miss the point. It was God in the full significance of these names and metaphoric appellations who had delivered Joseph and sustained him and who would affect for their blessing. What a comfort if all the sons were listening, some of them hearing 
words of great discipline. I'm going to scatter you. Instead of them hearing words of great humiliation, you're going to become slaves. But all of them hearing about a God who carried Joseph through the worst and made him a blessing to the world. Joseph has risen to his highest point, right? And now he must diminish that the son of Judah may rise. But Joseph has served an important role, hasn't he, in the progression of revelation? Because God has foreshadowed the coming of the Lord Jesus, who will be hated, who will be falsely accused, who will be cast down and it look like no one can help him as he hangs on the cross, and who dies. But the God of Jacob will raise him from the dead, And lift him up victorious from the grave to the heights of heaven as the king of Judah. God will do as he said to Mary. He will give him the throne of his father, David. And so we see in Jesus Christ the almighty power of God to save. And as we look to Jesus Christ, then we know that all these divine names describe for us our God. And everything God was for Joseph, he in Christ is for us. And that's important because, brothers and sisters, our waiting is not yet over. The son of Judah has appeared. He's won the battle. He's ascended to heaven. He's paid for all of our sins, but we still live in a broken world. We still have our trials and our troubles. And we wonder, how can I wait for Christ to come back? How can I make it? How can I be fruitful? And God says, do you see what I did for Joseph? A fruitful bow by a well. God says, do you see what I did for Christ? Hated by men, but the blessing to the world. And God says, if you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, then I am able and I'm willing to make your life a blessing too. You're not on your own. You're not a victim of circumstances. You're not enslaved to sin. You're not under the power of the devil. The world won't have its way with you. If you're united to Jesus Christ, if you're united to Christ by faith, And this almighty power is at work in your life, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And by that power, you can wait for Christ. You can say no to worldly means and methods. You can focus upon the son of Judah whom God has given to you. You can recognize with all these sons that God has given you your allotment and your portion and your place to serve. And though the archers shoot bitterly at you, you can identify with Christ and say they did that to my master too. But it didn't sink him. God has lifted him up victoriously. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3. God gives us what we need to know at just the right time. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We pray you give us the grace to know how this applies in our lives, to take it to our hearts We pray you'd expose to us where we've relied upon worldly means. 
where we have sought instant gratification and failed to wait for the son of Judah. We thank you, Lord, for the greater revelation we've received in the New Testament, that we have seen the coming of the son of Judah, the son of David. We thank you that he is the victor, and we praise you for him. We pray that we learn to praise his name. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you give us hearts to wait on him until we see him coming on the clouds in glory. Make us fruitful for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.